Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard And welcome once again to Strange Planet. On this episode, American metaphysical religion. Most Americans assume the United States was founded by pious Christians. However, as my guest reveals in his new book, from the very beginning, America was a vibrant blend of beliefs from all four corners of the world. Again, the book is Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. There it is. And, uh... Ronnie, Mac, uh, Ronnie P- uh, Pontiac uh, worked as Manley P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He's produced award-winning documentaries and has written for Invisible College Magazine, Newtopia, Metapsychosis, A Cult of Personality, and The Original Reality Sandwich. And he joins us from Los Angeles. Hey, Ronnie, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My pleasure. Let's talk about a, a fellow Canadian, Manley P. Hall. Uh, for those not familiar, just tell us a little bit about uh, this um, gentleman who founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, where you worked. He was most famous for a book that's come to be known as The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, which was a compendium of obscure esoteric knowledge that he had acquired during trips to Europe after the Great War. Uh, when he was at the Second Great War, the World War II, where he acquired rare manuscripts and books, and he found in them in- inspiring wisdom that he wanted to share. So he created this book when he was still a young man as an encyclopedia of Western esotericism. He gave lectures for decades at the Philosophical Research Society, thousands of them. You can hear him on YouTube where he's a popular lecturer, um, even though he has not been with us for about uh, 20, 30 years. And he, when I knew him, was in his 80s, and I found him to be one of the most decent and kind and honorable human beings that I've ever met. And what did you do for him? What is a screener? I was the one that would look at his letters, take his phone calls, and sometimes take meetings with people who wanted to meet with him, but who he or his secretary found to be possibly questionable or maybe even dangerous uh, or perhaps uh, troubled in a way that that he could not address. Uh, and so that was my job was to to only let the people through who they felt Manly Hall could help. My understanding is he um, he kept a lot of his earlier, I guess, 
dabblings in the occult kind of under lock and key. He didn't, he, he was very cautious about people sort of going down maybe a path that he went down. He was fearful that it could cause, what, psychological, maybe even some spiritual harm. Can you talk to me about that? That is true. Uh, there was a cabinet in which not only were those uh, lectures and, and writings under lock and key, but so were the works of Crowley. And I believe he had Elephas Levi in there as well, although he would often write about him, uh, somebody who's a, a really constant source of inspiration, a French uh, Parisian uh, ceremonial magician in a sense, but simply an esotericist who, like most of us, uh, combined influences uh, from all over the place into something that, that was uh, what we would recognize today as uh, as American metaphysical religion, or at least that's what academia is calling this area of study. And and what what particular? I mean, did he talk to you about this? Like, you know, these were areas that I I got into and stay away, or was there a a warning, a caveat? No, um, he. We never talked about that, but I can tell you a story about his wife Marie, who told us that when she met him. He lived in a dark house with blackout curtains and had what she described as a dwarf manservant. And she said that he would have these creepy parties, as she described it, with swamis and weird musicians and uh, actresses and such. And she claimed, I'm sure she, she really did this, that as soon as she entered his life, it was an end to all that. And she she opened up all the windows and made sure he ate a hearty breakfast. <laughs> was, um, what what was um, I mean? Was were there concerns he had with Aleister Crowley or? Yes, I think that he. I mean, I certainly met. Um, how do I put this? Amongst the people that I screened. I found that there were two sorts of spiritual practices that were most likely to cause serious problems. One was spiritualism, the mediumship, essentially, and the other was ceremonial magic, and particularly uh, in the OTO kind of variety as it evolved in the 60s uh, in America, sort of as a rebellious approach uh, to the hermetic tradition. and. I'm not saying that the traditions themselves are in some way at fault. It's what happens when people who have personal issues that have not been addressed enter these paths, and then these problems can become amplified. Um, is that to suggest that these uh, spiritualism or these traditions um, have a, a certain um, a power or that they, I don't know, they bring discredit to... Um, I don't know, different, different types of esoteric sciences, let's say. I think it's like everything else in life. I think that, that you find a whole bunch of people who don't know what they're doing but claim the title. And then you find a, a middle ground of people who know something about the subject and are competent. And then you find a few experts who are really brilliant at what they do, whether that's a sport or a doctor or a lawyer or a metaphysician or a spiritualist or a ceremonial magician. I think it's, it's, and there are people who, who approach those areas of life and they become disasters for them. So people who want to be sports heroes, but being an athlete turns out to be a disastrous choice. 
to me is is comparable to a ceremonial magician somebody wants to do this but because of uh, perhaps some kind of psychological damage uh it turns out to be a dangerous path for them did manley uh he hall believe that's what happened to alistair crowley you know i'm not sure the only thing that he ever said to me about alistair crowley he certainly appreciated him on a level uh, i i think that he felt that Crowley was a bad influence, perhaps, uh, from his observation. And I think that he, but he, what he said to me was that he thought that, that Alistair Crowley would have been the poet laureate of England had he not been mad as a hatter. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So um, the, the hermeticism, I mean, I'm not asking for a, a, you know, it would take too long to give us a, even a crash course in hermeticism. Um, but you maybe highlight some of the major tenets of Hermeticism, this, I guess, blending of uh, a Greek and Egyptian um, spirituality. That was nicely said. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very rich tradition and very interesting one because originally it was uh, thought that the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great Hermes, this Egyptian god, uh, and master teacher would were were from ancient Egypt, and so they they predated the Gospels and the, the even the Hebrew Bible. And amongst the in the fading pagan world, and also among esotericists, this was a uh, a very popular uh, scripture to appeal to for saying that that not only is our tradition just as as old and older than yours, but also it, it has this great depth of wisdom. And it turned out later that very likely the, the works had been created in, uh, in around 400, I would say, um, maybe 300, and that it was created by Neoplatonists, most likely. And for generations, scholars thought, well, that must be the case then that these were just forgeries. But now scholars are arguing that although they were probably put together then by the Neoplatonists, that much of the matter in them does agree with ancient Egyptian theology. And that perhaps they were, they were trying to lay down in writing what had been an oral tradition that really did originate in Egypt. And so these teachings, which are in the form of, of the master talking to a student, um, and which are very much in agreement with many uh, Neoplatonic observations about life uh, that seem to uh, typify what became the Western esoteric tradition. And we see the influence uh, in America in the late 1880s or so with the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, um, which is, is literally teaching uh, their version of, of Hermetica. Um, as far as the teaching itself, um, oh, I just hate to even, I, I want to recommend to everyone that they read about it themselves because it's, it's an adventure and you do it in injustice by trying to explain it in a few moments. Understood, understood. But this, uh, this early influence of Hermeticism and even the occult in mm -hmm. early America, you talked about the 1800s, like during the Wild West, you know, the OK Corral, you had... Was it uh, Alexander Wilder, uh, this American physician, uh, mm -hmm. who's a Neoplatonist, a scholar, 
early member of the Theosophical, uh, Theosophical Society, um, uh, who was, I guess, kind of the father of holistic medicine in, in America. Is that fair to say? Early uh, he was a huge yeah. influence, yeah. He, it was yeah. called eclectic medicine in those days. And he wrote the great uh, encyclopedia instruction book for eclectic doctors. So um, well, tell me more about Alexander Wilder. Sure. Um, actually, the reason that the book exists, my book exists, is because um, when I was working with Manley Hall in his vault of rare books, I found this huge tome and leather bound tome and when i opened it it was a newspaper a bound issues of newspapers and this newspaper was called the platonist and it dated from the time of the ok corral from st louis missouri i could not imagine what this thing was it, it went against everything i knew about that time and place and it turned out that the publisher thomas johnson uh was was I don't know why or how he did it, but he created this thing that existed for a couple of years and provided translations of Proclus and Plotinus and Plato, and also esoteric translations. Uh, Abner Doubleday, who uh, was once thought to have invented baseball, mm -hmm. and was a Civil War general, um, he had translated the works of Eliphas Levi, who we had mentioned earlier, the Parisian Magus. And so, uh, this esoteric newspaper in the middle of, of the Old West uh, set me off on this 40-year search for information about who these people were that were behind it, because even Manley Hall had very little knowledge of who they were. One of them was Alexander Wilder. We had a few of his books in the PRS library, but we still didn't know a great deal about him, and even Mr. Hall didn't know much about him. Uh, so I went off looking for information. I couldn't find any for a long time. But during this time, academia has experienced a revolution. And the approach toward esoteric studies has completely changed. And the amount of work that has happened now, I would say in the last 20 years, more has happened in terms of researching this subject in an academic setting than has ever happened in history all put together. And uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, if, if, if they're publishing um, a newspaper and uh, Abner Doubleday is publishing a translation of Eliphaz Levi, obviously they have an audience in America, which is, you know, when you think about it, uh, it's not just, these are not just isolated. It has to have, there has to be a business argument to be publishing this stuff. Yeah, there Ab was, it was very critical. It was actually, yes, it's actually fascinating. It was very popular. And there were Plato clubs all through the, the Midwest, which then was the far West. And often they were teachers from the local schools and, and the wives of well-to-do men, uh, what few intellectuals there might be in the town. And they would celebrate Plato's birthday. They would, they would have reading assignments and guest speakers, including Alexander Wilder, uh, who would come around and, and talk to them about Platonic concepts. And this was, it was really quite the rage. In fact, newspapers and magazines carried stories about Plato. It was big news when Yale University announced a new translation. Um, there were big articles in magazines talking about uh, the Platonic tradition and the Neoplatonists. It, it was fascinating to me how neglected this was. Uh, There's only one book written about it called Platonism in the Midwest. I think it was 1962 or 63. And uh, 
the funny thing was that a few years later when I was a musician touring, uh, I was back home though. And I, I was at a store across from the whiskey, a go-go that had been there since the days of Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix called the hippocampus. And when I walked in there, uh, they had a few leather bound books on a table. It was a book. Of, it was a store of all kinds of curios. And I picked it up and it was the Platonist bound in leather. And I was stunned to see it in the store on Sunset Boulevard. I went to the proprietor and asked if we could buy it, thinking there's no way I can afford this thing. It was probably worth, in these days, probably not much because you can get it online. But back then it was worth a lot of money. And um, he went and called the owner of the store, who was this woman who had retired. And she told him, uh, asked him to ask me, is this just for decor or are you reading it? I said, oh, definitely to read. And she sold it to me for a hundred bucks along with a couple of very old Thomas Taylor uh, translations of Plato and uh, the Neoplatonists. Um, so when I had this book back in my life, it really started me back on the trail of what became this book that we're talking about. Ronnie, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss American metaphysical religion. Back with more in a moment. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Ronnie Pontiac is with us. American metaphysical, religion, esoteric, and mystical traditions of the new world. Uh, so this was a surprise to, to you. This was a surprise uh, to Manly P. Hall. Um, was, this, was this information just forgotten, or was, was, it, was there an active suppression of this, you know, the... Um, the deep roots that this has in the West? I think it's a little bit of both. First, in, in academia, in religious studies, the only worthy subjects for many generations of scholars were the established historical institutions, um, the Catholic Church, the, the, the Lutheran Church. Even studying Pentecostals was considered somewhat radical. Let, everything else was considered superstitious fringe and dismissed. Um, even the Neoplatonists were dismissed as being simply an attempt to compete with Christianity. Um, so the, there was a kind of suppression in that, that scholars were raised to view their subject this way. The revolution that occurred happened when, when several important writers uh, applied in religious studies, something that was being applied elsewhere, which was the idea that we should examine these subjects without critiquing or judging them. We want to know what happened. We want to preserve what happened. And later, perhaps we can theorize about that. But until we've captured what's out there, we shouldn't be making opinions about what's important and what isn't. Now, we've seen it for one example is um, the study of the Rosicrucians which was very influenced by a British scholar named Francis Yates, who had a romanticized view of the story, but nevertheless, uh, very inspiring to many people, including myself. And this year, Nadine Ackerman, who has spent 20 years studying Princess Elizabeth Stort, who was the winter queen of Bohemia, who was at the center of a lot of the original Rosicrucian fervor, um, published a book that absolutely changes the picture of the, the whole environment that Rosicrucianism happened in. Because for the first time, a scholar examined her letters 
or ciphers or the, the papers that are survived, things that for hundreds of years people had thought were unworthy of study because they were simply a woman's leftovers. Now we see that in fact, she was a very important part of what was going on in those times. And what we learned from those letters changes everything in that area of study. And that's happening all over the place. You so explain, excuse me, Ronnie, the, mm -hmm. you call the, the Rosicrucian fervor. Um, Okay. Um, this was uh, around uh, the, in the very early 1600s. Um, there was there man these manifestos were released. It's a fascinating story. No one's sure who did it. They they were anonymous, and they said that they were representing a school called the Rosicrucians, and that they were bringing a revolution to the world. It would be the end of the power of the Pope. It would be there would be a new world ruled by science and there would be freedom and there would be uh, an understanding of what um, nature can bring to us instead of a fear of it or a domination of it. Now, although this was taken very seriously and, and part of it was they said, uh, we're a secret society and we, we can be invisible and we can be in several places at once um and if you are interested you need only mention it out loud and if you are worthy then we will contact you um they they caused this panic people thought there was they, they were called the devil's jesuits and they were they thought there were these occultists had been let loose on the world and now in recent scholarship we're seeing that it's very likely that the people behind these manifestos were students, university students, who, who metaphorically may have had more in common with the beats than being some sort of metaphysical masters who had master who had, had this idea that would revolutionize everyone. Um, they created this fervor where people, hundreds of books and pamphlets were written saying that they were fraud, that they were right, that 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 the author should be a member and should be allowed to to join and uh, all kinds of people were discredited as Rosicrucians. Descartes was accused of being a Rosicrucian and it was a very serious accusation. But the school became influential. They, they call it this Rosicrucian school over time. Whatever its beginning, it was an ideal that was imitated by generation after generation. Uh, there were organizations that were created that purported to be the Rosicrucian Society or to have charters from it. And they continue to this day. And whether they have anything to do with actual Rosicrucian origins or not is something that's still argued about in academia. But, but the rich cultural history of Rosicrucianism actually comes into America very early in Pennsylvania with Ephrata and, and other communities who are... Um, applying these ideas that have come from uh, German mystics like Jacob Bamey, Paracelsus, and also from these early individuals who we now call Rosicrucians. Uh, most of the people that are thought of and written about as Rosicrucians today are people who denied that they were Rosicrucians. But of course, that's the conundrum because a Rosicrucian would deny being a Rosicrucian. <laughs> so what... <laughs> What is the heresy with the Rosicrucians? Is that what we're talking about, a heresy? That's why they denied? That's why you could discredit someone by referring to them as such? Well, the, the form of insult changed over time. It, it began as a religious heresy because they, they actually talked about 
killing the Pope, that they wanted there to be no more Popes. Um, and they also had a, a rat, a, well, let's just say that they were very much on the Protestant side of things. They thought that the splendor of the Catholic Church and the ritual of it and all the things that, that those were pagan and were, were things that had actually poisoned the religion. So in that sense, they were, they were rather orthodox for their time. But over time, they became known, Rosicrucian meant that you were some kind of a fake, fraudulent hustler who was trying to put one over on people with your, your magical BS. Um, but then even later, it became just a feckless dreamer who doesn't really know what's going on and has these crazy theories. Early um, governors in the United States, the governor of, was it Connecticut? Connecticut Colony. Mm -hmm. uh, Connecticut Colony. This was the son of John Winthrop um, Sr., who was the governor of um, Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was a Rosicrucian? Well, that's a very interesting question because it depends on your definition of the term. He went to Europe seeking Rosicrucians as a young man. He said he didn't find any. He certainly never claimed to be a Rosicrucian. However, he did live his life inspired by the Rosicrucian ideals. He became someone who was very skilled at healing. He was known as Connecticut's doctor. He used Paracelsian medicine and his alchemical experimentation and practices to create medicines that were considered very effective at the time. And he had groups of nurses that he trained to dispense his medicines all over Connecticut to help people. He protected the innocent as, as the weak, as Rosicrucians were supposed to. Uh, he protected some of the tribes from the stronger tribes, for example, when they were being uh, viciously attacked. And, and so in a sense, he lived as close as he could to the Rosicrucian ideal. Uh, Manley Hall was of the opinion at the end of his life that, that in that sense, John Winthrop Jr. would be a Rosicrucian. He may never have been initiated by some sort of a secret society of people, but the life of dedicated ideals, a life of dedication to ideals that he lived uh, was a Rosicrucian life, which he exemplified. And therefore, in a sense, he is a Rosicrucian. Uh, presidents, first presidents of Yale and Harvard well, were alchemists, true? True, that is true. And many presidents of both actually. Tell me more. I mean, when we're talking about someone being an alchemist, what do we mean? Well, it was it, there was a time there when alchemy was really the exciting hobby. Um, it was, but it was more than that because for the greedy, for for people who had only the lowest motivations, it was a way to daydream of tinkering lead into gold and suddenly being wealthy. For people who had the highest aspirations. They believe that you have to live the purest life in order to achieve transmutation and, and, and the philosopher's stone. And so therefore it was a spiritual path. And for most people, it was the beginnings of chemistry, really. It was experimentation with, with how in a laboratory setting you could change one matter to another. Now they believe that everything had a soul even metal had a soul. So within lead, there was a soul that you could say longed to evolve to be gold. And a pure alchemist could find the right wisdom to help that lead evolve itself into gold. 
And so people were fascinated with it as a what wasn't even known as science yet, but it was the beginning of science. They were fascinated with it as a way of potentially becoming wealthy or discovering a great medicine. And in, even couples would be involved sometimes, uh, sisters and brothers or wives and, and husbands often would work together in the laboratory on these projects, trying to uh, replicate results from books that described how to do the, these things or from teachers that had taught them. And so at Yale and Harvard, um, their laboratories were put into place for the students to work in and alchemical experimentation was encouraged. If, if alchemists were running Harvard and Yale, uh, how did or did alchemy filter down into um, medical schools? Well, let's just start with that, medical schools, for example. Well, yes, yeah, certainly, because it was so deeply bound with medicine. Uh, many alchemists were working. The, the thing about the Philosopher's Stone was that not only did it represent enlightenment, but it also represented health. It represented total healing. So the desire to create medicines was certainly part of alchemy and Paracelsian medicine and the influence of Paracelsus on alchemy were at the center. Uh, part of the reason why so much of this experimentation was happening originally in Germany. And so the these um this was taken as science it was a great improvement over what had been used they were taking frogs and cutting them in half and tying them on the soles of the feet of prince henry in england when he was dying of a fever because they thought that was going to cure him or the the weapons solve where you would put this goop on a weapon that had wounded somebody and their their wound would heal a hundred miles away or four maybe it was four miles away um, and so medicine was extremely primitive. Now, at least with Paracelsian medicine, you were getting people who were working with herbs, who were finding out what indigenous and local cures were. Paracelsus famously walked his way across Europe talking to every witch and doctor and just anything, anyone he could find who was working with these natural substances, believing that nature had the cure for everything. So the um the role of i guess this friction let's say between materialists and rosicrucians or the hermeticists uh how did that end up advancing science that's very interesting um there's a moment where there's let's take the example of Robert Flood, who was somebody who's often thought of as a Rosicrucian and who was this polymath who wrote books in which he tried to explain everything, how everything worked. It was almost an Aristotelian endeavor. And then let's take an example like uh, Mermer, who wrote the book uh, Harmony Universale, who was a Jesuit. And Mermer wrote a that book, Harmony Universal, was a wonderful compendium of everything about music. But one of the chapters in it was about the science, what would become the science of acoustics. He was like the father of acoustics because he was the first person to come along and say, sound has nothing to do with planets, planetary Pythagorean ratios or any other kind of magic. Sound is what happens when a vibration reaches the nerves in your ear. 
And this was really the beginning of materialism in a sense, even though he was a Jesuit. And what he was fighting was Flood's magical ideas. So these two going at each other in pamphlet wars were opening the doors to something that would make their belief systems obsolete. They didn't know it, and they were they were inviting science in in this in this fascinating way. So the church itself went from from science is just bad, and we're going to kill Bruno, and we're going to threaten Galileo, and and uh, and then you wind up with a Jesuit who is the hub of the development of science in Europe at that time. So. It was it was happening in both on both sides in a sense among the esotericists who were fanciers of the Rosicrucians who saw science as liberation from superstition and the, the domination of the confessional, and then on the other side you you've got a Jesuit who's fighting the esotericists by saying no no your magic is false that's just science. And doesn't realize what that's going to turn into. Another time out awaits. And then back with more of my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Ronnie Pontiac, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. How did um, how did Hermeticism, Rosicrucianism, the Esoteric, how did it um, impact Christianity in the New World? That's a fascinating area of study. I have a I have what might be an extreme point of view about this, which is that I feel that it's possible that American Christianity resembles American metaphysical religion more than it does Christianity. And here's why I say that in a simple, simple, quick form. In Europe, traditionally, whether we were dealing with Calvinists or even earlier in the medieval period, Christianity meant that this world was a place of suffering. You accepted your poverty. You perhaps even expected damnation because it was pride to think that you were good enough to not be damned. You were to help each other. You were to turn the other cheek. You were not to be rich because being rich was a a detriment to getting to heaven. Now, in America, Christianity has fairly rapidly began changing into what became known as the prosperity gospel where and of course this existed in Europe as well although not as overtly there is the idea that if I'm in in harmony with the divine then I'm going to have a life that is utopian I'm going to have wealth I'm going to be happy and nothing bad will happen to me because I will be protected and certainly this has been a core belief in every religion since the beginning of time. But in America, Christianity took on this idea with a vengeance and, and pretty much left behind the idea of this world as a place of suffering, pretty much left behind the idea. So many uh, great Christian saints and also Protestant writers were people who embraced suffering, who embraced poverty, who 
who felt that, that, that they could find God more easily that way. And today, we find churches telling people that, that they should give more to the church because that way they'll get more from God and everybody can prosper and, and have a great time. And that if you're unhappy or if you're suffering bad luck or bad health, just get right with God. Now, this is, is really at the essence of American metaphysical religion, the idea that, that my soul is what organizes my body. And if I get my soul right, then my body will be right, and then my life will be right. And this idea that I deserve this prosperity because I have made certain adjustments to my life, doesn't, it's not that far off from some form of ceremonial magic or something where we're trying to use our will to achieve our ends. So this is a, it's a different approach to Christianity. And I think that there's a new book out by Catherine Albanese just this month that talks about how in America, nature and the pursuit of happiness kind of redefined Christianity and, and redefined perhaps even religious, re religiosity. Because if you think of, of how Buddhism is looking at a world that is a place of suffering and and Christianity is, and, and Islam, the world is a snare. And, and here is America saying, no, the pursuit of happiness is religious. If I can find my happiness, that means I am right with God. That means that I am on the proper spiritual path. That's a very different concept of Christianity. Do you have an opinion as to whether that's a positive development? Not really, because I, I just enjoy seeing all the, the developments. I, I, I don't know. I know too much history to think that something that looks good might not turn out bad and vice versa. So I don't really have a personal opinion about whether that's a good thing or not. I think it's fascinating to see a religion evolve and how different spiritual beliefs influence each other. And especially here in America, where there seems to be this readiness uh, that used to cause a lot of anxiety among academics in the mid-century, uh, last, you know, in the 1900s, um, the idea that they called it Sheilaism, or, or they called it bricolage, that Americans were just taking what they wanted from, from everywhere and making these fake religions for themselves that were absolutely unique to the individual and therefore would destroy community. But what we're finding is that people are reinventing religions. They are finding new spiritual paths. They are taking the entirety of our heritage of spirituality in the world and, and treating it as something that they can study and potentially benefit from and responding to the things that they resonate to in a way that I don't know if it's happened before, that so many people have, have looked at religion as something where they can choose what, what path they want to take rather than this is the only right path that I was born with, and I cannot deviate from it. Uh, what do you make of the the explosion, really, um, in interest uh, in the occult in the United States? For example, um, and this is not you know that new. I mean, it's probably been around for forty or fifty years. This explosion in interest in things like divination, uh, Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, astrology. What does that indicate to you? It's happened repeatedly in the history of, of the United States. And I would say that this time around, it's not even as, uh, as striking as, for instance, during the days of spiritualism, 
at the end of the 1800s where it was truly a mania. I mean, everybody had tables tapping and everybody wanted to meet a medium. And it was, everybody just thought it was, it was fascinating. Like Platonism had been not that long before that. Um, I think that people focus on, on, on reinterpreting um, the truth for their time. And that in America, somehow, we feel freer to do that than we do in most places. Uh, just on a side note, you mentioned spiritualism. Um, was that empowering to women in the, um, let's say, the late 19th century because so many mediums were women? I think so, in the sense that, that here you had a culture where a woman was probably not going to be allowed to say very much in the presence of men. And a good medium could command an auditorium full of men and tell them what they were doing wrong and suggest how they should live their lives and, and be listened to. Uh, so it was empowering. Now, ironically, most of these women were channeling male spirits. So they were disempowering themselves within this empowerment. But it certainly it, it coexisted in many ways, in many places, happily with the whole suffragette movement. And there were famous suffragettes who practiced uh, mediumship or experiments in that area. And there were mediums who became strong feminists. So, um, and the other interesting thing about that, by the way, is uh, talking about indigenous Americans, that, that within this, the most popular form of spirit guide for women tended to be indigenous Americans. So, in a weird way, women who were so terribly suppressed without even the vote at that point, and and the natives who'd been decimated, the, the indigenous Americans were, were brought together in this, uh, do we call it unconscious? Do we call it spiritual? I don't know. But this eruption suddenly of, of opinions coming from allegedly native and clearly female from the, the gender of the, the medium sources. That was a big revolution. What's the number one message uh, or takeaway you want people to, uh, to have from American metaphysical religion? I want them to know that their heritage as, as Americans is much wider than they know. And that, that there's so much to find out about our country that changes perhaps the way we may feel about it. Because having only received one side of the story suddenly discovering that there are all these characters, all these brave people who dared to find their own paths, who dared to combine religions that hadn't been combined before, or to pay attention to people that had been dismissed. Uh, all these people uh, existed throughout our history as a country. And, and instead of feeling that we, we are so limited in our choices, and that, that, in fact, this was simply a Christian country, and that's the only right way. We are now able to see, thanks to the work of all these academics, that this country is filled with examples of people who are quintessentially American and who embrace the esoteric from the start, from the very beginnings of colonization. What would you like to think Manly P. Hall would think of this book? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I did partially write it to continue his work, to be able to, to add all the new scholarship that he didn't have access to, to the dialogue. How do we get a copy? 
Uh, it's available uh, from the publisher Inner Traditions. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all other platforms. And I'm sure it'll be in some stores. Um, if you if you want to order it, that's always wonderful from a store. Uh, support local businesses if you can. Uh, like the Bodhi Tree in LA. Well, the Bodhi Tree is no more, sadly. Oh. But uh, but places like that, absolutely. Ronnie, great meeting you. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Nice to meet you also. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.